Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. The ecosystem in Middle Tennessee is vibrant and full of life. Just look around. A few weeks ago, trees and bushes were bare. Now, almost everything is green and blooming. One essential ingredient to this springtime bloom is pollinators, our small flying friends that stop by flowers, trees, and plants, helping them to reproduce while we lucky humans literally get to eat the fruits of their labors. Later this hour, we'll talk with people who are buzzing with enthusiasm and info on how we can help keep our pollinators alive and thriving. But first, we're tuning to our coverage of yesterday's deadly mass shooting at the Covenant School in Green Hills. Six people were killed. Three of them were not even 10 years old. Evelyn Deakhouse, Hallie Scruggs, and William Kenny. The adults are substitute teacher Cynthia Peak, custodian Mike Hill, and the leader of the school, Dr. Catherine Kuntz. They were all in their 60s. WPLN editor Tony Gonzalez joins us now with updates on this developing story. Tony, thanks for being here, man. Hey, Cleo. So this story has continued to evolve overnight and throughout the, this morning. What's the latest that we've heard about this tragedy? Yeah, well, we uh, we have now heard from the school itself. Uh, in a statement, they referred to the, quote, terror that shattered our school and church. Uh, the school uh, is expressing a lot of gratitude for the first responders as well as for the community uh, outpouring of support. They're also asking for privacy while they heal uh, in the coming days. Uh, a few other uh, updates that we've had in the last few hours. Uh, there is a charitable fund that has been established for Covenant. Uh, that's through the Community Foundation of Middle Tennessee. You know, uh, the foundation often does work like after tornadoes or flooding, uh, after the, the bombing downtown. Now they're responding to the school shooting. Uh, folks can get more information about that at cfmt.org slash covenant. A uh, couple other couple other new uh, developments in the last little bit. Um we're going to have a reminder all around us out in the community because flags are going to be flying at half staff uh, across the country. Uh, that's through a presidential order. That's through the uh, through sunset on Friday. And then uh, the newest thing this morning is there is new video footage that's being shared by the Metro Police. It is from the perspective of the two officers who were part of the team that rushed in to the school and they ultimately uh, fired fatal shots at the attacker. Uh, I don't really recommend watching that video it is really in, uh, it's tense it is graphic um, but it does show us kind of the urgency of those officers you know as soon as they arrived uh, heading into the school to, to confront what was happening there mm. all right so you know now that we've had time to kind of uh confirm some of the basics and the get a fuller picture remind us of what happened well yeah i mean if we if we step back um you know we can see that a, a former student of covenant school Audrey Hale, police say, planned a detailed attack, uh, you know, with, with maps and plans, multiple guns, ammunition. Uh, this person shot through a locked door to get in in the first place, um, you know, fatally shot uh, the, the children and the staff members who, who you named. 
the police arrived within about 10 minutes and, you know, they moved in toward toward the danger. We know that they were also shot at. The officers uh, took on gunfire um, before before they fired their shots. Uh, in the aftermath, we know that there was just like a massive effort to reunite families, uh, to move the children uh, to a nearby church where that happened. Uh, and then there were uh, multiple vigils last night. Uh, at the same time, investigators, uh, they were at a home for most of the afternoon uh, in the Belmont neighborhood gathering information about Audrey Hale. Uh, that included the the writings, the plans, and some additional uh, guns that were in that home. So about that evidence, this is still a developing story, and police have not shared a motive, not yet shared a motive. What are we following and expecting to learn in the coming days? Yeah, well, that, that's right. So the, the police have not... Uh, publicly tried to explain, you know, why this happened, what the motive was, uh, but they have indicated they're reading through writings that might shed some light. Uh, we'll also be hearing from the community. Uh, there's actually a rally happening this hour right now outside of the state capitol. Uh, Paige Flager on our news team, she's there now. We also just learned that the mayor and other leaders are hosting a, a really large, we expect it to be large, candlelight vigil that's at 5.30 tonight at Public Square Park. That's the, the park in front of City Hall and the courthouse downtown. Um, and, and our journalists will also be just trying to, to help understand what happened, what the impact is, uh, especially on those directly affected, including you know the families and the church and the school community. That's WPLN editor Tony Gonzalez. Tony, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Listeners, you can find all the latest information about the shooting at WPLN.org. Now, Let's take some time to remember one of the community members we lost yesterday. Dr. Katherine Kuntz was the headmaster of Covenant School, and joining us now is her longtime friend, Anna Caldell. Anna, thank you for coming here to honor your friend. I'm sorry for your loss. Thanks, Khalil. And um, I'm glad for the chance to be here to remember her and to honor her, um, particularly because in the last 24 hours, there's been an absence of her name said by friends we had in common um, who certainly have platform and space to be able to honor her. And so I'm honored to be here. And she has plenty of friends and people who love her who I'm sure could tell so many more stories than I could. But, you know, I understand that you two know each other, that you knew each other, we were friends for more than 20 years, right? We were. Um, we started working at Christ Presbyterian Academy um, at the same time, August of 2000. And she was working in learning services at the time, and she worked in that capacity from 2000 to about 2009, and then became the academic dean over there before um, heading to Covenant in 2016. And then I taught high school art from 2000 to 2008, um, when I left teaching to adopt and start my family. Now you just said that a lot of people had a ton of a lot of wonderful stories about her. For those of us who didn't know her, tell us a little bit about what she was like. Well, you know, last night I sat up until three or four in the morning scrolling through people's memories on um, one of her social media spaces. And there were so many students that we had shared in common, one even who had named her child after Catherine because that bond was so close. 
because without Catherine's support and love for her unique learning needs, she wouldn't have made it through school. And she wouldn't have felt empowered to accept and embrace who she was. And there was a lot about Catherine that in that space within a private Christian school, I learned to embrace and um, support and empower young people with disabilities. What does that say about the kind of you know, it tells us about the kind of person that she was, but the kind of educator that she was, how she approached this honorable task of teaching the youth and the future generations. She had a vision that I think few really grasped. Um, we were all, I, I, and, and saying that, I count myself among the people mm. who long as I knew her, still didn't have, you know, the the corner on the market. I hadn't cornered the market on everything she had imagined yet. Mm. But she made this incredible space. You know, if you think about, um, she was just a dynamo, and she honored humanity so much. She had such a deep, abiding respect for the sacredness of life. And from that, she carved this space within a private Christian school. And, you know, now that I'm a special education advocate, I can tell you a private Christian school can offer students a lot of specific supports that might not be available in a public school, but they don't have um, IEPs. They don't have, um, they're not known for deep benches when it comes to special education supports. They don't have 504 supports. They don't have ADA supports. But she created a process over at Christ Presbyterian Academy that was called an ILP, and it mirrored the IEP process in a public school so that she was empowering students in a way where if they needed to step out of that space for whatever reason and head into a public school or if their families moved somewhere else, they at least had um, a foundation that they could rely on and that you know, future folks working with them could look at and sort of track their history. And that was incredible. And um, she started, even though she was headmaster over at Covenant, um, while I knew her, she was teaching full time. She was working on a program to, for, on a summer program for gifted and talented students she was working on her master's, then working on her PhD, raising two children, and writing a book. Mm. Like, she didn't stop. Mm -hmm. Did that fire and fervor, mm -hmm. did that influence you at all? It did. And I'm so lucky to have had her mentorship in my life. She, is almost, she was almost exactly 10 years older than I was. My birthday is December 11th, and I just turned 50, and hers was December 18th, and she just turned 60. And, um, you know, in the circles that I grew up in, the countenance of disability was framed as a sense of being in which you were anticipating specific action, I think, or specific things from God in order to perceive yourself as whole. 
And that if God didn't show up in a certain way, you weren't whole yet. And so that wholeness was something that you needed to name and claim from God and to pursue. And that reference to your disability in the meantime might be hedging your bets or might be indicating a lack of trust in um, God's power or God's ability to heal you. And... So what I saw from Catherine instead that really lit a fire under me and is part of why I felt free and unafraid to adopt two young men who were disabled and to become a special education advocate, she talked frankly with students about their disabilities. And so it was the first time I'd in my life um, as a person, much less as a teacher, that I'd had students come into my class and say, well, I have dyslexia, so if we read this... I'm going to need some help or I need this a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And to begin with, the idea that a student would come in and say, oh, I have this disability and be so frank about it or even make a joke about it, that they were that free with it, mm-hmm. I hadn't experienced before. But there was this power that every student she worked with gained from that in that they knew how to advocate for themselves. They knew how to embrace who they were and they found enough joy in it to be able to laugh at that and not take themselves too seriously, right? And I know that in high school, there's times, too, that you laugh in order to hide anguish and anxiety and tend to fit in. But in those interactions that I had with students where I saw that laughter, there was a sense of becoming and a sense of freedom that, that I hadn't seen to that point. And that was Catherine. And that was all Catherine. Find that. Absolutely. And I know it says it's your friends. But right. from sitting here, it feels like not only did you lose a mentor, but you lost a sister, it feels like. I don't know this is hard for you. Thank you. That's absolutely fair. And You know, my husband and I were talking because there were so many little things that we picked up without even thinking about those being because of our friendship and our relationship with Catherine and because of our love for her. And, you know, when I started my nonprofit as a special of, you know, um, for special education advocacy, she was maybe the first donor out of the gate. And she was, you know, very much, heck, yeah, let's do this. This is this is on. And. My husband was talking last night before he went to bed because he has this routine now that he does where he pulls out his phone and he plays one or two games before he goes to bed to calm himself down. And he said last night, you know, Catherine taught me that trick. Mm -hmm. Catherine taught me that about myself. And so there's all these spaces where we feel her impact, her being in, in our days. Even though I hadn't had a chance to see her since the pandemic started. Mm. I really regret that, too. You mentioned, Anna, that Catherine had friends who have a platform, um, who, you know, have been somewhat silent about her. Is there anything you'd like to say about that? There absolutely is. Um, You know, there's a song that sort of came into my awareness in the last week because of a a documentary with David Letterman. And it's a song from U2 called Invisible. And the first lines of those have just really taken on new meaning for me in the last day. 
It's like the room just cleared of smoke. I didn't even want the heart you broke. It's yours to keep. You just might need one. And it makes me think of the people within our circle who have benefited from the work of Christ Presbyterian Academy. And I'm thinking specifically of Senator Marsha Blackburn, who has done a lot to support the school and, you know, donated to build a new theater there. And my son's getting ready to crew a production of Drowsy Chaperone in that space. And, you know, I'm really thankful for those kinds of things. But given that Catherine faithfully served all of the families at CPA for 16 years before heading to Covenant, and the fact that so many kids come from Covenant once they finish sixth grade into CPA. My, my son, who is a junior at CPA, his two closest friends, came from Covenant. And they had a lot of friends there. They had teachers there. And one of them had to leave school yesterday. Pardon me. Because of what was happening and, you know, of course, the effect was that my son didn't even remember what class he was in when they went on lockdown. Um, and since the, you know, the sort of thing that has tragically become the standard uh, thoughts and prayers, it's been radio silence from Senator Blackburn on. And, and I want to say Marsha because of the family nature of Christ Presbyterian Academy because it's not like we're people are using titles around each other there. And so it feels like radio silence from Marsha about my friend and former colleague and, and as you say, sister influence mentor, Catherine, who loved children into becoming and empowered them there. And I'm not sure if if I'm supposed to understand that the value of an AR-15 is more sacred than my friend Catherine's life, especially after the power of her witness and love and the space that that created for holy children in Christ Presbyterian Academy and at Covenant. And for Bill Lee, which again, I mean no disrespect by not saying governor, but when I taught all three of, uh, three of his four kids in art and worked alongside his wife, the first lady, Maria, who was then Maria Denina. Um, pardon me. He has been very open about how in 2001, 2002, um, how his daughter Jessica attempted to end her life. And she did not show up for my class that day. And, and I tried to find out why she hadn't shown up because she wasn't on the absentee list. And then learned shortly after school that she had gone home and, and attempted to end her life. And we were just absolutely crushed, absolutely yeah. crushed. And I remember being so thankful when she returned to school that she felt safe to come back to school, that she felt loved enough to feel like she could come back to school and that that would be a safe place to be. And since then, you know, he's talked often about how lucky he is to still have her after that day when he came so close to losing her. 
And, of course, now she's married and she's a mother and he's a grandfather. Mm-hmm. And that grandparenting is something that Catherine's not going to be able to do. But since his thoughts and prayers post yesterday, he has not made a press conference. He has not shown up at that school. He was not there next to the mayor. It's radio silence. And again, I'm forced to kind of consider in this awkwardness that is our community of faith that's shared in which for years we've talked about teaching children to think and live Christianly. Is is that about elevating the value of an AR-15 over the value of Catherine, who will not get to be a grandmother now? And I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your candor. I want to thank you for exhibiting strength and coming on to the show to talk about your dear friend, Dr. Catherine Coons. If I may, yes, um, one of the things that's also part of the song that I referenced is that it ends with this sort of refrain of, there is no them, there's only us. And it's also part of why I, I talk about Bill and Marsha and Catherine, because I don't want us to imagine that there's some kind of perce- uh, artificial distance between us as human beings because of those honorifics. There's, there's only us. We, the, we're all we have at the end of the day. And we sort of, as the community of Nashville that calls itself Nashville, we were dragged into this horror. And it's, I believe, through being community that we have the only possibility of finding our way through this darkness. Anna Caldell is a longtime friend of Dr. Catherine Kuntz, head of Covenant School, who was one of the victims of yesterday's shooting Anna again. Thank you for showing us what grace looks like and coming on to the show. Thank you. All right. So, listeners, if you'd like to share how this shooting has affected you, head to thisisnashville.org where you can leave a message, a voice message, or fill out a written form. This Thursday, we'll dedicate our entire episode to this. And a quick correction for our listeners, the candlelight vigil is to remember the victims of Covenant School and the shooting. It will be tomorrow night at 5.30 at One Public Square Park. We've got to take a short break. When we come back, we'll bring you our listeners a bit of respite from this tragedy and pay a visit to a local beekeeper to learn more about the pollinators that are essential to our local ecosystem. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. In dark times like these, it's especially important to stop and take a breath. We need to sit with the simple and vast beauty of this natural world around us and appreciate the lives that we have and the lives of others. So today we're going to admire our local honeybees. Now, today we're going to sit with a few local 
beekeepers and bee experts to learn how these bees and other pollinators are helping our fantastic and wonderful and rich ecosystem. I'd like to welcome my guests, beekeeper Jim Gene Smalley, Tennessee's head apiarist, Mike Stutter, and Ian Daw, a founding member of the Honey Bee Collective, a beekeeping cooperative, and the secretary of the Nashville Area Beekeepers Association. Gentlemen, thank you all for being here. Really appreciate it. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank, thank you for having me. You know, there's a little evidence of it today, but the weather is getting warmer a little bit. And, you know, bees and other flying creatures are kind of about doing their thing. They're going to be out for the spring and summer. Grees are great pollinators. They make this wonderful, delicious superfood called honey, I've heard. Um, they're key to the ecosystem as well. Mike, here's a question for you. How many bees do we need here in Tennessee to have a healthy population? We need at least 80,000 colonies in the state of Tennessee. Right now, we have about 50,000. So we're 30,000 short. Yeah. Why are the numbers so low? Uh, because diseases and pests that have come into the country They've, since the 1980s. So this has been a problem for 40-some years. Yeah. Back in 2008, we were down to about 8,000 colonies. Wow. And now we're back up to 50. Well, how did we make the bounce back? Resilient beekeepers. <laughs> okay, well, you know, I, I I didn't I didn't know that the state had an official apiarist. Did I say yeah. it correctly? Yeah, that's pretty cool. But tell me, what is an apiarist? Um, somebody that keeps bees, basically. Okay. But my job is to make sure that the bees in the state are healthy and that we have enough to pollinate our crops. Now, did the position of state apiarist come in in the 1980s when we had this struggle? No, it came in back in the 1940s when there was a disease called American fowl brood that spread across the nation and wiped out almost all the colonies in, in the U.S. Wow. So this has kind of been a little bit of an ongoing problem. The population goes up, then if something comes along, it sinks, and we just constantly restore them. Yeah. Is that, would you say it's sort of the balance naturally in the world? Yeah, you could say it's a natural balance. I mean, everything, you have disease issues that come and wipe out populations, and then they rebound. Um, it can be considered a natural type thing. Okay. Now, Ian, you're a beekeeper and a master gardener. Where did your love for bees develop? When I was gardening back in England, I had always known of uh, some neighbors beekeeping but I never had the opportunity myself to follow through on that. So in my garden, I actually just concentrated on growing native plants for the benefit of pollinators and honeybees. And now in, I'm in America, now in Nashville, I've got the opportunity of keeping my own bees and I'm absolutely loving it. I've kept bees now for seven years. I've got 12 colonies in three different locations. Wow. Um, I started the cooperative with a couple of other beekeepers last year, but my, um, main thing I love to talk about when people ask me about bees is supplying the bees and native pollinators with an abundance of flora mm -hmm. to keep them um, sustainable. I've got some questions about that for you, but Gene, you're a beekeeper as well. So how, yes, did, how did you become so obsessed? Um, when I bought my first house, I started planting fruit trees and they would flower every year. They fruited the first year and they wouldn't fruit anymore. And so I started asking questions and what we learned in third grade came to pass. You mm. need bees to pollinate the trees so we can eat. So I subsequently fell in love with the bees 
And I mean, the trees are still there, but you know, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So walk us through the steps of becoming a beekeeper. What does anyone listening ha- have to do to do it the right way? What I did, and I'm not saying I'm right. Let's get that straight. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but what I did, um, I decided that I wanted to try beekeeping. And so I got a book on beekeeping. And then once I started reading that book, it helped me decide if I really wanted to, you know, start beekeeping. And then I called grandma and said, hey, grandma, I I want some bees. And she said, you can handle it. And then that was it. (laughs) Grandma (laughs) had faith in me, so I kept going. And then what I would say is read before, get you some bees for Prac app. Mm-hmm. And read after. Continue your reading. So it's like, a... always do research. Like American Fowl Brood, you need to know what that is. Most people think it's a, think it's something that it's not. It's a bacteria. So if you know that, knowing is half the battle. Mm-hmm. And you can fight the bacteria and not this big thing that's looming over you. Gotcha. If that makes sense. Well, Mike, are any permits or licenses required to become a beekeeper? You're required to be registered with the state. Okay. Um, and you're required to have your bees inspected if you're selling them or moving them within the state. So I mean, that's the legal things. Okay. Um, but you can keep them anywhere in the state of Tennessee. We have them right downtown Nashville on top of buildings. You know, in every city we have, Chattanooga, Knoxville, Memphis, Nashville, there are bees within the city limits. There are bees on top of buildings. Um, there are bees in real close proximity to the neighbors, which don't cause a problem normally as long as people do what they need to do. Um, you don't want them flying straight across your neighbor's yard. You want to put some kind of barrier up there so they have to fly up above head height so okay. they're not running into people. Yes. All right. As long as they stay out of their flight path, they're okay. That's good to know. Yeah. And, and what he said about getting started, the best thing you can do is find another beekeeper and go out with them and learn with them for a year before you get your bees. That way you, you really know whether you want to spend the money to get into it. Mm-hmm. How, well, how, well, how much does it cost? About $1,000 per colony. Wow. Okay. So it's it's not cheap. You know, By the time you buy everything you need, it's about $1,000 per colony. So only serious yeah. enthusiasts need apply. Well, you can you can build your own equipment. Okay. You know, there's there's things that you can do, but yeah, it's it's not a cheap hobby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lekalona. We're talking this hour about the pollinators of our ecosystem with Mike Stutter, Gene Smalley, and Ian Daw. You can join the conversation and give us a buzz by tweeting us at this is Nashville. Okay, so we know that you know bees get nectar from flowers. Now, a few years ago. In the, when I was living in Albuquerque, New Mexico, my housemate, best best friend, became a beekeeper, and I was helping him. So before we got started with the bees, we planted a ton of buckwheat in the front yard, expecting the bees to come and use that. You know, the, 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 the colony was in the backyard. But they totally ignored our yard, and they preferred our neighbor's yard, which had a plethora of different types of flowers and plant life. Ian, tell me, why did... The bees that we so carefully took care of ignore this bounty of buckwheat to go to the neighbor's yard. Honeybees, like all pollinators, are very good at finding the best source of nectar and uh, pollen. And if there's something better for them than your buckwheat, then they will visit that. Yes, they will come back to the buckwheat, but once they find a better source, 
they will go visit that. And all the bees within a colony will be informed by the bees that come back from a foraging trip that there is a source that mm. direction, that far away, and they will visit that one. Okay. So it's like the bees came back. They said, yeah, there's some buckwheat in the front yard, but we got like passion flowers and all this other stuff. Oh, go over here. It's prime pickings. Yes. Okay. Yes. But tell me, is it like best practice to constantly monitor and feed your bees or should you let them kind of develop and, and grow on their own? I only give artificial feed to a, a colony that's establishing in its first year. Once it has survived its first winter, um, or, or in the, at the end of the first year when I'm doing my extraction, I should say, I leave a lot of their own honey on, at least 50 pounds per colony. I do not take that off. And then they use that for their own winter survival. And then coming into the spring, they, they have probably got a little bit of surplus left, but they're ready for spring buildup. The queen is laying heavy again to build the colony back up to a healthy size and they can start foraging again in the spring, which is about to happen this week. Okay. So you say at the end of the season, you leave 50 pounds of honey for them. How much How much honey does the average colony yield? Gene, that sounds, 50 pounds is a lot of honey. Oh, my gosh. Um, <clears throat> you can get up to 250 pounds per hive. It, wow. it just depends on the season and what's out that season. So what flowers they get into if we have... A spring that's wet and dry, meaning like maybe you get some showers every day, you know, like in the night or early, early morning. Mm -hmm. And then when the sun comes out, it kind of dries things up a little bit, but the nectar is still flowing. Gotcha. So if you have a year like that, it, it's no telling what you can get. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, I wonder what's threatening our existing bee populations. Mike, what, what are some of the n major threats that we're facing here in the region? The main threats we're facing right now are varroa mites, which is a, a mite about the size of a seed tick that gets on the bees. Um, and it's spreading viruses. It's a vector kind of like the mosquito is for West Nile virus and things like that for us. Mm -hmm. And that's the biggest issue. Um, there's around 39 different viruses that have come into the country that are being spread from the viruses to the bees. And that's, that's our biggest thing. And one of the things with foraging and feeding is the more sources they go to, the better forage they've got, the better nutrition they've got. So the better off their immune system is. Mm -hmm. And if you're taking all of the honey away from them and feeding them back sugar syrup, then their nutrition isn't good. So then their immune system's down. So they've got problems. So beekeepers like these that don't take all the honey... Okay. Help their bees out. The people that take all the honey and try to feed them back sugar syrup to get them over the winter, they're the ones losing their bees. Ian and Gene, I see you shaking your heads. Yeah. yeah. So basically for humans, <laughs> yeah. you, you, it's better for us to consume honey than high fructose corn syrup, yeah. essentially. Yes. Okay. So, you know, what are some of the better ways that we can take care of our bees? You know, what are some of the best practices, Mike, to help keep them, Sarah, Ian, to help keep them healthy? When I'm talking to gardeners... Um, beekeeping is a great segue to talking about looking after the pollinators. Even if you don't want to convert your whole lawn to a prairie scenario, you can just have a couple of strips either side of your driveway or pathway. Just plant some natives, some local natives, um, and there's plenty of resources to find out um, about information. Um, Wild One supplies plants and seeds. And uh, just, just pl start planting some natives and you'll be amazed at how much life, including honeybees, 
stops by your yard instead of just flying over it. Now, you, you were just talking about pollinators in general, and a lot of people confuse bees with wasps. Gene, how can we tell the difference? Um, what I'm going to say probably doesn't make sense, but when you internalize it, it will. Wasps look like they're trying to find something, like they're hunting. And bees look floaty, like they're floating on a cloud. And so one of the reasons is wasps are actually hunters and bees are gatherers. Mm -hmm. So wasps eat meat. They eat nectar and other things, but their main source of protein is meat. And bees only eat nectar or gather plant material, basically. So you can kind of tell their flight pattern. And you can tell, like, when a wasp comes at you, like, it beelines towards you. That's a bad use of the word, but mm -hmm. it's, like, direct towards you. When a bee comes at you, it's kind of floating around checking you out. Okay. Wasp looks like, hey, I'm about to get on you. Okay. In a bad way. Now, I heard that um, a bee will give you a warning by headbutting you before it stings you. I've kind of witnessed that. I find bees do their best to leave you alone. It's only when you start aggravating them, waving your arms, um, that they're going to be aggressive back. And if you're stood right next to their hive, then obviously it's likely that they might get defensive. Yeah. But if you're out in the field and it's looking for nectar and pollen, the last thing it wants to do is attack you. It just wants to get back home with nectar and pollen. All right. Well, I want to thank you all for coming on the show and giving us the lowdown on the bees and here in Middle Tennessee. I want to thank my guests, Gene Smalley, state apiarist, Mike Stutter and Studer, pardon me, and Ian Daw of the Honey Bee Collective and Nashville Area Beekeepers Association. Thanks again, gentlemen, for keeping us on the buzz. And thanks for joining us. Thanks, thanks for having thank us. You. Thank you. For listeners, if you're just tuning in, we kicked off this hour with an update on yesterday's Covenant School shooting. You can follow our ongoing coverage at WPLN.org. Now, we've got to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn how we can encourage our local pollinators to do their thing. If you want to attract pollinators to your yard, do you have a question on how to make that happen? Now's the perfect time to tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We're talking about the pollinators that help bring us flowers and food here in Middle Tennessee. Before the break, we learned more about the bees here in our state and some of the other pollinators we see flying around in the spring and summer. Now let's learn how we can help these pollinators thrive and expand their numbers. For that, I'd like to welcome my guests. Joe Brichetto is a naturalist who authors the Sidewalk Nature blog, and Mike McClanahan is the transportation manager for the Highway Beautification at T dot. Joe and Mike, thanks so, so much for being with us. Welcome to This Is Nashville. Thanks for having me. This is really hey, great. Good afternoon. So we, we just, thanks both of you for being here. We learn a lot about bees in this region, but pollinators are more than just bees, right? So Joe Tully, tell us, what is a pollinator? A pollinator is a plant partner. It's anything that can move pollen from the male part of the flower to the female part of the flower. 
because then that flower is pollinated or fertilized and can mature into a fruit, which has the seeds, which can then grow the next generation of that plant. Okay, so what are, other than bees, what are some of the other pollinators we'll find here in our region? Well, 90% of all of our flowering plants need animals to help them. This is in Tennessee. Okay. And so for us, that means for the most part, insects with one really great uh, exception. So the insects are not only the honeybees, which is just one species, and it comes from Europe, Asia, and Africa, but in North America, there are 4,000 different species of native bees. Wow. In the Southeast, there's 700, so those are ours. And then, they were talking about wasps earlier, Mm -hmm. Um, in North America, there are 18,000 different species of wasps. Um, In the fly category, just the flower flies. In North America, there are 900 different species. These are like the hoverflies uh, that you see that, anyway, I'll talk about those later, I hope. Okay. And then there's butterflies. In Tennessee, we've got 124 species. But if you add the moths, which are also pollinators, we come up to 1,864. But the biggest one are the beetles. And these are just the flower specialist of the beetles. In the U.S., we've got 77,000 different species. Wow. So we have a lot of pollinators around. (laughs) And these pollinators are working day and night, correct? Yes, day and night. Okay. Now, Mike, question for you. Why is the Tennessee Department of Transportation concerned with pollinators? To me, that seems to be more of an agricultural department type of thing. It's definitely not something that you think of, uh, you know, and within the main uh, business that TDOT does, you think of bridges and, and roads and that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. There was, uh, you know, transportation policy in the country works uh, through these big omnibus legis- pieces of legislation that uh, move funding at the federal level. Uh, there was probably 2015, 2016, something around there. Uh, there was uh, the uh, big piece of legislation called the FAST Act. Uh, that was passed nationally at the time Congress passed it and, and of course, signed by the president. There was language uh, added into the FAST Act that state and tribal DOTs should do what they can to preserve pollinator habitat on rights of way. And you think about it, DOTs, they just own a ton of land. Uh, so those sort of maintenance practices and some of those uh, you know, better things that we can do for plantings and with construction projects definitely have an ecological benefit and and, you know, they help out. So that's that's how we got involved. We really grew a pro, uh, program uh, over the course of several years, um, you know, ever since probably 2015, I think, is when we started looking at our own practices and and then doing some things for public education and, and involving some other partners. Today, we've uh, we've got kind of a, a, a we call it the Partners for Pollinators Working Group, but it's a, just an informal working group between us and ag. Uh, and the uh, environment conservation, and we've just added the wildlife resource folks. So several state agencies, some nonprofits, we're really trying to uh, make sure that we're the seat of uh, a program that's robust, that's doing what we can for preserving mm-hmm. pollinator habitat. So you guys are letting everyone know you're, you're, you're preserving pollinator habitats. But Joe, tell us, why is it important for us to be aware of the pollinators in their habitats? Oh, wow. First, let me say that pollinators don't just pollinate. These are the invertebrates that are the foundation for our entire food web. They're what our birds eat and some mammals and fish and reptiles and amphibians. So we need them for all kinds of reasons. Um, And I like what your beekeepers said earlier about adding habitat at home, even just a strip along the driveway, um, because that's what we can do. We have that power. If we own a home, we can add 
habitat in so many easy ways. And even if we just rent, we can add habitat in little containers. Question for you. How can somebody who's really obsessed with their lawn, they want their lawn to be pristine, how can they change up their lawn a little bit to help the pollinators in their community? Oh, this is the trouble. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So I don't know. You know, it's not that lawns are bad. You can still have lawn that's habitat. And I would beg anybody, the very first step, if they care about the pollinators, if they care about the future of the planet, to stop putting stuff on the lawn that kills habitat. So like mm. the very first things you can do actually save you time and money. So you stop with the fertilizers, stop with the pesticides, stop the herbicides, stop the mosquito spray, and maybe even stop, you know, using a leaf blower on the grass every single week. That's 250 mile an hour winds directed down there at the pollinators who are just trying to make a living. Mm -hmm. So even if you do that, maybe I think you can have a beautiful mosaic lawn. Yeah. I like that idea. Okay. That works. Right. That really works. Well, 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 Mike, talk to us about why it's so important to diversify the types of plants and flowers that are environment that, that are in an environment. Yeah, I, I love the the mosaic lawn uh, approach to it. There's there's definitely uh, I think some things that if you're planting or if you're you're aware of the types of things you have in your yard, um, that maybe you want to just make sure that you've got uh plants that are flowering at different times of the year. Um, you've got a diversity of plant types. You know, pollinators don't just, uh, you know, gather the nectar through one ways. They have different shapes of mouths and, and use, you know, different tongues and they're shaped differently and they, they operate differently. So having different types of flowers that flower at different types of year is all uh, is all really essential. There is a tool, if, if any of your uh, listeners go to tnpollinators.org, uh, there is some free information on, uh, on garden and uh, garden uh, plans. There's plant palettes. Uh, there's things that are really native to this part of the South um, that are you know beneficial to pollinators that you can learn about. Uh, and it's all based off of your location, your soil type, your sun exposure, all that sort of stuff. What kind of pollinators do you have in your backyard? So I've got, well, I've got some ones that I want to, uh, <laughs> I want to have. I've got a bat box uh, that I haven't uh, found residence on. I've, I've got a, several acres on a, on a hilltop that's kind of wooded uh, is where I'm located. And, uh, and they like to roost in the trees instead of my bat box yet. So I'm hoping uh, someday I get some, some bat residence, but I've got uh, some milkweed on my property. I've got some, uh, 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 Rubecchia that comes back every summer. I've got lots of, uh, lots of butterflies, uh, that I see that, that my kids love. Um, and, uh, definitely some hummingbirds and some other, uh, you know, some other types of pollinators. So those are, those are the main ones from bats to butterflies. That's pretty cool. But so Joe, tell us where are anyone out there who's listening, who may be interested in helping out pollinators and, you know, saving the planet, as you say, I agree with you, by the way, <laughs> where can they where are the best resources for people to find if they want to see more pollinators in their yard? You know, there's so many books and websites and apps and whatnot I could direct them to, but it's so much more fun to do it with other people. So I would suggest they go to their nearest big metro park, like Warner Park, Shelby Bottoms, Beeman. There's a whole staff of naturalists there just waiting to show them native habitat in action. They've got workshops. They've got wildflower hikes right now. 
sign up for a wildflower hike and just go and be amazed. Mm-hmm. All right. So last question for you, because I have just about a minute left. I have this vision of having a lot of butterflies in my backyard. How can I make that happen? Okay, quick. You got to have nectar flowers for the grown-ups. Okay. So, so a, a succession, like I said before, a succession of blooms from spring to fall. But for the babies, you have to have the host plants. These are the plants that the butterfly moms look for when it's time to lay eggs, and they will only lay eggs on certain plants. So look that up, like like milkweed for butter, butter uh, milkweed for monarchs. Sorry, okay. I'm hurrying, but the host plants and nectar plants. Host plants and nectar plants. And then you're in, yeah. So what's the best way to help out the little caterpillars that are coming around? The those host plants. That's what they eat. That's the only thing they eat. Okay. Yeah. That's what they'll eat. Well, I want to thank you all for coming onto the show. And I'm sure all the pollinators out there want to thank you. I want to give, again, big thanks to my guests, Joe Brichetto, who is the author of the Sidewalk Nature blog, and Mike McClanahan, transportation manager for highway beautification at TDOT. I want to thank you for being with us today. Really appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Sorry for all the puns out there, but hey, it's one of those days. Thanks to everyone who tuned in this hour. Check out our ongoing coverage at the Covenant School shooting at WPLN.org. And listeners, if you'd like to share how this shooting has affected you, head to thisisnashville.org. You can leave us a voice message or fill out a written form. This Thursday, we will dedicate our entire episode to this. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. Really be good to each other.